Let's turn to Romans 10 this morning. Then I'll have a couple of announcements. Announcements do not fit into my gift of communication, as you know. First of all, as I mentioned on Thursday, we spent, Pam and I spent quite a long time away from you last year because of my mom's graduation into the presence of the Lord, but we recognized and kind of occurred to us that we never did get to rest, so we are going to step away for a couple of weeks and just do that. That's We've done that three times in 25 years where we didn't have to do something, so this is our third time in 25 years, so we're going to do that. Now, I'm very grateful that on very short notice, we have speakers that will be speaking in my absence, and that's when I pray for good crowds. That's when I pray because, as Paul said, all the more in my absence, and that I take very seriously. The men that are speaking are approved not only of God, but certainly by me. They've been, as many of you have been, been with me through many trials, many testings, and they have been tested and found true in the word, as you know already. And so the schedule should be on the website, but I want to read to you the schedule. Again, I thank them for consenting on a pretty short notice, even though when I was in Bible school, your notice was about a second. If you were in the audience, you were called, come up here and do an intro, and you go, okay, you pretty much had to do that. And I hope that our speakers will be that way. Sometime I might get stopped by the local constabulary on the way here, because I may go a couple miles over the speed limit. But And so these men have to be ready at a moment's notice. Be ready. So on Wednesday the 25th, coming up, Brian will be speaking, Brian Messick. And on Thursday the 26th, Thursday will be open this week, Phil Henry will be doing the Power Gospel. On Sunday the 29th, Pastor Brown will be teaching again. He's also teaching, if you'll pray for him at Vermont Baptist, not in Vermont, but really near here, and also in Cranberry, and he'll be speaking here next Sunday. And both Brian and Craig and Phil have talked to me recently about what they're teaching, and their hearts are very full, believe me, and I hope you're here to receive from them. Then again on Wednesday, May 2nd, Brian will be speaking again, Pastor Messick, And then someone who got a nickname, Boomer, and for all the world, I can't understand why. And I think, Pastor Phil, you nicknamed Emery Persinger Boomer for some reason. Is it because he speaks loudly? I don't know. Well, but he's... (laughs) And the reason is he's heard in secret some things that he likes to shout from the housetops. And he reminds me of myself, not because of when I was when I first came down here, not because he is where I was back then by any means, but I used to just get up and preach, and I'd be all over the Bible, but somehow it hung together. And Emery will be speaking on May 6th and May 9th, Emery Persinger. So thank you to these men who have consented very recently and on fairly short notice, and I hope that you'll all be here. I urge you to be here. I pray that you will be here. These men are fine-tuning their gifts, and it's much to my pleasure, and I know to the Lord's pleasure, too. And I will be back here, I believe, on the 13th, and I've got some tracks to run on, so I'm, no matter what I'm doing, I'm studying, so that'll be happening, too. And I want to announce also that the month of May is our annual food drive for Salvation Army. And there's a list of items on the information table. Wednesday, there'll be a list of items. So once again, we have the privilege of meeting many of the needs of the community by a food drive. So keep that in mind. The month of May is the month for that. Romans chapter 10 And my heart has been quite full on this message for a while. So as we did Thursday, I said, we're going to do a couple of secret raids into the center of Romans. 
We did one in Romans 7 on Thursday. We're going to hit Romans 10 today and a secret raid into the center. We've been dealing with both flanks, the right flank and the left flank of Romans. And we're going to make a journey, a sojourn into the heart. This will finish the first 48. And the first 48 messages of Romans, the epistle will be finished today. And so we have a lot of phenomenal insights to develop in the very near future. So keep that in prayer and keep that in mind. Last week, or it might have been the week before, my friend and faithful brother, Dennis May, many of you know him, he slipped me a little note and recommended the movie Come Sunday. And I know many of you have seen it about the true story of Carlton Pearson, who discovered that God saves all of human beings. He saves the whole world, and that he does so without people having to believe. He does so because of a finished work. This got him into a lot of trouble because he was, I believe, under the mentorship of Oral Roberts, and he had a mega church. and I certainly have a lot of affinity with him as my brother in Christ because when you discover this, you can't walk it back. He was asked to walk it back. He was asked to renounce it. He was asked to explain himself. And he only did so with more fervor and more of the pronunciation of the gospel. And that was Carlton Pearson. Now, one thing that was left unresolved, and I know some of you have seen the movie, and I do recommend it. It's one of the few movies I would really recommend that you see called Come Sunday. I think it's on Netflix now. But there was one thing that was not resolved in the movie for me, and it didn't need to be, but I, I wanted it to be. When the character who played Oral Roberts presented Carlton Pearson with Romans 10.9, and he said, I want you to consider this, and I want you to meditate on this, and maybe you'll change your mind on telling us that everyone's going to be saved and that Christ died for all, and that all in Adam die, and all in Christ are alive, which he said in a sermon. And I want you to explain it. And it was left unresolved in the movie. And I went to sleep after watching the movie, and I woke up the next morning, and it was resolved to me. So I'm going to answer that question. Romans 10.9 happens to be in the middle, in the heart and center of Romans 10. What we're discovering in Romans is really two things. Romans is not a, an argument between the righteousness by the works of the law and righteousness of faith or righteousness of personally believing in Christ. It is the righteousness of God, which is a universally saving act that was completed at the cross versus both the righteousness of the works of the law and the righteousness of an individual's personal faith. And Paul addresses both of these in Romans. And I'm taking a sneak peek and a secret foray or a surprise raid into Romans 10 because of this. Now, I want you to see, because for time's sake today, I want you to understand that the way that I see this, and I think I can demonstrate it today, Paul is speaking in Romans 10, 1 to 4. Romans 10.4 is the big 10.4. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. And what he's saying is Christ has been made the righteousness of God for all. The Torah is not the standard of righteousness, but Jesus Christ is righteousness. He's called in Jeremiah 23.6, Yahweh Tzidkenu, the Lord our righteousness, 1 Corinthians 1.30 says it this way, God has made him to be for us righteousness. And in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him or that we would be the righteousness of God in him. This follows on the heels of 2 Corinthians 5.19 that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. At the heart of Paul's teaching, there is a lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Just as with John, in John one twenty nine, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The whole gospel of John is about that, and it culminates with the lamb on the cross 
speaking these words, it is finished. One word in Greek, to die. it is done. The book of Revelation does the same thing. At the heart, there is the lamb, a lamb that had been slaughtered and yet was standing in the midst of the elders before the throne of God, the lamb of God, the same lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And this same lamb is at the heart of Romans. And we will find out that that's right in the geographical heart of hearts of Romans. In Romans 8.32, God did not spare his son, but freely gave him over for us all. And that is the son, Jesus Christ. Unlike Abraham, who at the height of his faithfulness offered his son who was spared. Unlike Abraham, Jesus Christ at the height of his faithfulness offered himself and was not spared and endured judgment for all the sins of all the world. When it was done, it was done. In the eternal mind of God, it is finished. Nothing is required of man, as we will see. Paul is speaking in Romans 10, 1 to 4, and you'll see very clearly in 10, 5, he quotes Moses, not Paul. Moses says in verse 5, Moses writes of the righteousness that is of the law. He describes it this way. The person who does these things will live by them. And so that's from Leviticus 18.5. But then the point that's misunderstood and that was not even addressed in that movie is that from 10.6 to 17, that's not Paul speaking. Paul introduces a character called the righteousness of faith. And the righteousness of faith is what we might call the theory of justification by faith, justification by personal faith. Paul says, but the righteousness of faith speaks this way. And it goes all the way through 1017. And then Paul says in 1018, wrapping it up, making what we know to be an inclusio, we call it an inclusio, brackets in the verse. Paul wraps it up by saying, but I say, in verse 18 to 21. With that outline, let's look at it. I've translated the whole chapter from the Greek text. Paul says this in Romans 10, 1. Brothers and sisters, the desire of my heart and my petition to God for Israel regards their salvation. It's about their salvation, he's saying. And then he says, I can testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but that it's not according to knowledge, because being ignorant of God's righteousness, and this is what this is about, it's God's righteousness, which is the saving act of God in Christ for all versus man's righteousness established by the works of the law and versus man's righteousness established by a human act of believing versus this is about the righteousness of God. This is about God's righteousness, which he has made Christ to be for us. And that's the whole world. This is about the righteousness of God. And so, again, when he talks about his heart's desire and petition to God for Israel about their salvation, he already knows the answer to that. Put an arrow in there and go to 1126, all Israel will be saved. He knows this. He's leading up to it. That's what I'm doing. I know certain things about God's saving plan, and I've seen the end of it. But I'm trying to teach up to it. I'm trying to explain that the scriptures say this in every single detail. And so I'm doing the work. And the work is very arduous, very difficult. It involves a conflict at least one a day and a severe conflict that involves a lot of things, but it's worth it. And so he says in verse 10, I can testify about them. That is Israel after the flesh. They have a zeal for God, but it's not according to knowledge. Knowledge of what? We'll find out because being ignorant of God's righteousness and that's what is being apocalypsed or revealed stunningly by the gospel in Romans 117 and by desiring to establish their own righteousness. They have not been subordinated to God's righteousness for Christ is the end of the law and we could say for righteousness or even as righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, please notice that to everyone who believes that Christ 
first saves, then gives faith. We don't have faith in order to be saved. We have faith after we're saved. And then faith has a retrospective view of the salvation of God. So this is to everyone who believes. That is, to those who believe, those who have been subordinated to the righteousness of God, they have the knowledge that those who only have a zeal for God lack. What they who try to establish their own righteousness lack is the knowledge that God has reconciled the world to himself. That's the knowledge that they lack. They lack the knowledge that God has already reconciled the world to himself in Christ. And so it is Christ as righteousness which completes or consummates the law. There's a lot of debate about what does it mean Christ is the end of the law. The word is telos in the Greek. And so telos, what does telos mean? And telos means two things. It means the end or the termination, but it also means the consummation or the fulfillment of the law. Christ is both. Christ is now the righteousness of God, not Torah, not the revelation of God in Torah or the law, but the revelation of God in Jesus Christ, the crucified and risen Lord. We know that the last judgment, as we've been teaching recently, is not a time to be feared, but a time to be anticipated with great joy because our judge is the one who is judged for us. It is Christ as righteousness which completes or consummates the law. In other words, the law requires a certain standard for Israel and for all mankind, for that matter. But Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that standard. He said, stop thinking that I've come to destroy the law and the prophets, but rather to fulfill them in Matthew 5.17. On the other side of it, Jesus Christ also fulfilled and ended the law as a means for righteousness. Because as we are seeing in Romans chapter 7, the law or Torah was hijacked by sin. So even the person under law who doesn't want to comply with sin has to because the more he intends to do good in his inner man, the more he does evil. And that's because sin has hijacked the law. So the whole human race is under the power of sin and can't get out of it. They're stuck and they can't get out of it. Only a power superior to sin can deliver, liberate, and transform. Paul's gospel not only liberates, but transforms, as we're going to see. And I want to move a little bit faster through this because I want to get through this chapter and with the Romans 10.9 at the heart. Paul, in other words, simply longs for the day when all of Israel will be subordinated to Christ, as all the nations will be. As this section develops and concludes in Romans 11.26, Paul announces that all Israel will be saved. In fact, he says he saves all of Israel and all the nations by doing an awesome thing that no one expected. He imprisons both Jews and Gentiles in one prison called unbelief, and he has mercy upon all. It's not a matter of human belief. It's not a matter of human willing. Romans 9.16 says it's not of him that wills, but of God that shows mercy. He saves us according to his mercy, not because we will to believe or we will to go down to an altar or we will to ask Jesus into our life. He saves out of his mercy, and he saves all out of mercy, Romans 11.32. This is all going there. And so this is also the ultimate fulfillment of his unilateral covenant to them because in Romans 11.27, Paul explains just how he's going to save Israel. This is how he does it in 11.26 and 27. The liberator comes out of Zion and he takes ungodliness right out of Jacob. That's how he saves them. He doesn't save them by saying, believe in me. He saves them by taking ungodliness right out of Israel. It's a divine act. The righteousness of God is a divine saving act. And it is a new creation. Our salvation is a new creation. 
Where were you when God made all things? Nowhere. Where are you in the mix when he makes all things new? Nowhere. You're just made new. And that's period over and out. This is Romans 10.4, the big over and out. So that's why he says again, he takes ungodliness right out of Jacob. It's a divine act. And he also says in 27, this is the ultimate fulfillment of his unilateral covenant with them, a covenant which has been ratified by the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's why he says, I'm going to do this when I forgive their sins. And that's Israel's salvation does not happen when they believe, but when the Lord comes out of heavenly Zion and takes away their ungodliness, which is tantamount to his rectification of the ungodly in Israel. He does it. Then every eye will see him, especially those who pierced him, the very ones who pierced him. Every eye will see him. Then every knee will genuflect. Every tongue will confess allegiance to Yahweh as Jesus. Every tongue will then turn and be led by a chorus of praise to the Father by Jesus Christ, the Son. And then God will be manifestly all in all. This is what I meant when I said two weeks ago, the mystery in toto, the mystery in its totality is that all things are summed up in Christ. Christ fills all things with himself. And because God is pleased to dwell in Christ, he's pleased to dwell in Christ when Christ dwells in everyone and everything. So God will be all in all in first Corinthians 15, 28. In his eternal hidden being, God already is all in all. And that's how finished, finished means. Then he will be manifestly, starkly revealed to be all in all, even as he is now in the hiddenness of his eternity and in the omnipresence, which is already inhabiting the future. God is already present to your future. God is already present to your future. Now, here's the appeal to Moses. This is what the teacher in Romans 1:18 and all the way through back and forth with Paul in a mixed martial arts contest that we've been defining metaphorically. Romans 10:5. The teacher appealed to Moses before and this is what Moses says. For Moses writes it's very clear here who's doing the talking. I don't, I don't have any problem with this. I don't have any problem with taking the Bible at its word. And it says here, Moses writes, of the righteousness that is by the law. Paul isn't talking about the righteousness which is of the law. Moses spoke about it. And then Paul spoke about how the law came in a sideways manner to accentuate sin. And so that sin would increase, so that the more sin increased, the more grace super increased to the glory of God. Moses writes of the righteousness that is of the law. It's all summed up in Leviticus 18.5. The person who does these things will live by them. Now, Paul says the righteousness of faith. Look at what 10.6 says. This is a character he introduces. It's not Paul. It's called the righteousness of faith is what the reformers would call that you're justified by your own personal faith, your personal faith, your decision to believe. So Paul says, okay, contrary to the law for the righteousness, according to the law, the righteousness that comes from faith speaks this way. He says, he's still not talking about what his gospel is. He's not talking about his gospel here. He's talking about a gospel that says that righteousness comes by your faith as a reward for your faith. So with the righteousness that comes from faith speaks on this way, speaks this way. Do not say in your heart, quoting from Deuteronomy 9, 4 here, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, into Sheol, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. In other words, they quote Deuteronomy 30, verses 11 to 14, the faith 
righteousness crowd. And they say, no one can go up to heaven and bring Christ down. So you can't be justified by works. No one can get down into the abyss to bring Christ up from the dead. That was an act of God. But what we have to do is the following. What we have to do is the word of the gospel has to be believed and confessed or we won't be saved. So watch how it goes. Who will descend into the abyss, verse 7, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? Not Paul, not what I say. He says, what does it say? We could say today the justification by faith crowd. What do they say? And that's what I think in this movie, that's what the character that played Oral Roberts wanted Carlton Pearson to recognize. Look at Romans 10.9. Put it on a slip. Met him for breakfast. Said, look at that. And it wasn't resolved in the movie. I'm resolving it today. And I'm doing it with audacity and boldness because, well, because I'm called to. They say the righteousness of faith. What do they say? What does the justification by faith crowd say today? Turn on channel 40 or whatever channel it is. I don't know what channel it is now. I turned it on today. Same thing. Same thing. Come to God. Be really sorry. Say, I know I'm a sinner. But you don't even know you're a sinner. You have no idea until you're already in Christ and look back to see you're a sinner. That's Paul's gospel. It's the same old thing, and it's not the gospel. It's not the gospel. It isn't the gospel. It is not the good news at all to approach it that way. So they say the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we proclaim. This isn't Paul proclaiming, but the righteousness of faith crowd that proclaims it. Again, Paul does not proclaim the word of faith. He proclaims the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. He proclaims the righteousness of God, and he talks about it all day long, without exception, without compromise. He's like the psalmist in Psalm 71, 16. I will speak about your righteousness. And 71, 21, I'll speak about it all day long. That means I'm not going to take a break and speak about my righteousness by faith, my righteousness by the law, or anyone else's. I'm going to speak of Jesus Christ, our righteousness. I'm going to speak of him as the only human being that responded to you, Father, for the salvation of all humankind. I'm going to speak about his obedience to the extent of death by crucifixion. I'm going to speak about Christ all day long. I'm not going to speak about my believing. I'm going to speak about his fidelity. I'm going to talk about his faithfulness. And I'm going to talk about this gospel because it has the power not only to liberate you from sin and from complicity with it, but also to transform you by grace so that you no longer live under its power. Only this gospel does that. No other gospel does it. So, the word is near you even in your mouth and in your heart, they say. In other words, you don't have to go up there or down there, but you do have to do something in here. Really? We'll see. So Paul does not proclaim, again, the word of faith. He proclaims Jesus Christ and his faithfulness according to the apocalypse of a mystery, the revelation of a secret. Righteousness of faith or righteousness by human believing is speaking here. Paul turned it into a character. It represents a gospel. It's a gospel called justification by personal faith of the individual believer rather than rectification by the faithfulness of Christ for the whole human race, which is already done. When he said it's finished, he didn't say almost finished. He didn't say it's finished, but it will be later. It's done. Revelation 21.6 says that. The one from the throne says, look, I'm making all things new. From your standpoint, I'm making all things new. From my standpoint, it's done. It's done. I'm already present in your future. You're there, God says, in me, and I'm in you. So look at it. We're coming up to that verse, and here it is. It's the righteousness of faith speaking. Not Paul. It's the righteousness of faith speaking. 
not Paul. It's the crowd that thinks that when Abraham believed God, it was credited to his account as righteousness, and that they think that means justification by faith. But when we do a raid into Romans 4, we'll find out that's not what it is saying at all. Look what it says here. If you confess with your mouth, if you confess with your mouth the Lord as Jesus, Jesus as Lord, if you do that and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Future tense. Future. You believe in your heart. You confess with your mouth. God saves you in the future. Or as a result of you doing that. Now, you say, that's Paul. No, it, what, what makes you think it's Paul? When in Ephesians 2.8, when he wrote on the tabula rasa, the clean slate to a group of people that just found themselves in Christ after someone preached the word. He said, by grace, you have been saved. He said, you were dead in trespasses. You were under the power of sin. You're so helpless. You were dead and God made you alive in Christ. He made you alive. Why? By grace, you are saved by grace. You have been saved. Through faith, he says in verse 8, but that's not your faith. That's the faithfulness of another. By grace, you have been saved through the faithfulness of another. He didn't say, say in your heart, say this prayer with me. He didn't say that like the guy I saw for five minutes and that's all I could stomach. He didn't say that. So, you say you're getting all wound up. No, I'm not getting wound up. I've been wound up. It's called, like the kids say, it's lit. Yeah, the fuse is lit. Now it's blowing up. Now, if you confess with your mouth the Lord as Jesus, what did Paul say somewhere else in 1 Corinthians 12, 3? If no one can even say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. You have to have the Spirit before you can even say Jesus is Lord. In other words, God has to act on you first Then he gives you faith. Faith is a result of salvation. Salvation is not the result of faith. You see, my dear brother was correct. And he did hear God speak to him who said to him, I save all. And all these children that died in Rwanda didn't go to hell. And it doesn't take a missionary to save them. It doesn't take a missionary to save them. If you think you've got to go somewhere, and if you didn't go somewhere, and they went to hell, that's on you. You are ignorant. And a lot of people become missionaries because they want to go to a far-off land and tell somebody something because they hate their neighbor that lives next door. Now, so, here we have it. If you confess with your mouth... Already, if you, already Jesus Christ is ignored. He was obedient to the extent of death by crucifixion. But if you confess with your mouth the Lord as Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved future. Whereas Paul said in Ephesians 2.8, you have been saved and secured through a faithfulness that is not of yourselves. You say, that's hard to believe. That's because you've been steeped in this for all your life, some of you, in this truth. Look at verse 10. Well, that's, there's Mr. Roberts's statement, Romans 10, 9. For with the heart a person believes unto righteousness, With the mouth, one confesses unto salvation. Where did Paul say that elsewhere? Nowhere. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be ashamed. Still not Paul. Still not Paul talking here. But the righteousness of faith. Or even the righteousness of human faithfulness speaking. The faithfulness or the faith of the individual. He quotes a verse. He misquotes a verse. Do you know that sometimes you can read in the Bible a verse and you can say, that's the word of God. But then you realize that the speaker was Satan, as in Matthew 4, 1 to 11. Does not the scripture say, he said to Jesus, and Jesus would say, 
And the scripture says this, meaning he rightly interprets what Satan misinterprets. The faith crowd is trying to say that Isaiah 28:16 means you have to believe to be saved. That's not Paul. Paul has already undermined this misuse of Isaiah 28:16 in Romans 1:16, saying, "I am not ashamed of the gospel of God about His Son, which is the power of God for salvation." To all who believe that means everyone who has been given faith after they're saved knows that they're saved by the righteousness of God. It's through faith that they've come to understand it. So to everyone who believes means the Jew first and also the Greek, but it doesn't mean exclusively to those that believe. In other words, to those who believe the gospel and do it because God elicited the faith in them, they perceive the gospel to be the power of God to salvation, not their personal faith. This is the righteousness of God. And then Paul goes throughout the gospel, throughout Romans, to show that the righteousness of God is universally salvific. Isaiah 28, 16, which is quoted by this faith crowd, is a declaration that those who have faith in the tested foundation stone will not be ashamed. It doesn't say that they'll be saved as a result of their faith. It says they won't be ashamed because of their faith. The righteousness of faith continues to speak here. Now, this is just our first pass at Romans 10. We'll take other passes at it. I just want to hit it hard today, then disappear. Romans 10, 12, for there is no difference between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is rich toward all those who call upon him. That is, call upon him for aid. Paul has already said that the same God justifies Jews from the faithfulness of Christ in Romans 3.30. And Gentiles through the same faithfulness in Romans 3.30. Not that God is rich to all those who first call on him. God's rich to everyone whether they call on him or not. That's Paul's gospel. The righteousness of faith continues to speak in the same way as the justification by faith crowd speaks today. By misreading Joel 2.32 as if God only saves when someone calls. This is not Paul's philosophy or gospel. It says this, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Future of the word sozo for salvation. The righteousness of faith is still speaking here, not Paul. Remember, Moses speaks in 10.5. Justification by faith speaks in 10.6 and all the way through to this place. In fact, this is still the justification by faith that thinks that you can't, that people can't be saved out there in the bush or wherever else they are unless a missionary is sent to them. And so if a missionary is not sent to them, well, and then they invent a doctrine of the, doct- of the age of accountability. They invented that doctrine. It's not in the Bible. But look at verse 14. Still not Paul. Still not Paul. Consequently, how will they call upon him? If salvation comes from calling upon him, how are they going to call upon him? I see nothing in here of the central message of the cross of Christ. I see nothing in here of Christ's fidelity and obedience. I see nothing in here about God reconciling the world to himself in Christ. I see the cross sidelined. I see Jesus Christ sidelined. I see human action highlighted. So how will they call upon him in whom they have not believed? How can they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? Oh, you got to have the preacher. You got to have the preacher. No, you don't. You got Christ, you got enough. Moreover, I could say to this guy, you got milk, milk of the word? Yes, that's all you got. But verse 15, moreover, how will they preach unless they're sent? As it is written, once again, written to support justification by faith, how timely is the arrival of the feet 
of those who proclaim good things. Amen, I'd say to that. Nahum chapter 1, verse 15, Isaiah 52, 7. But not as they have it here. So it says in verse 16, but not all have believed the gospel. The righteousness of faith crowd says to Paul, not all have believed. You see, not all is, all Israel's can't be saved because you have to call on him. And if you don't call on him and believe on him, you can't be saved. So some won't be saved. That's the idea here. Verse 17, therefore faith, and what the, this speaker means The faith that saves comes from the report, the report that is the word about Christ. Now, you say, wow, I've quoted all those things. So have I. But look what happens next. Verse 18a. But I say, Paul's talking now. See, I called Paul. I said, Paul, where are you talking? He says, right here. 1018, that's me. But I say, but adversative, meaning contrary to what the righteousness of faith crowd says, I say this. Different, isn't it? Oh, it's different, all right. It'll get you drummed right out of a denomination. It'll get you knocked right out of an affiliation. It'll turn you from golden boy to whipping boy overnight. Every single time. So it must be understood that there's a character or a representation of the gospel of salvation through individual faith called the righteousness of faith. Paul gives it a name. The righteousness of faith speaks this way. Again, Paul isn't in a dialectic of contradictories with between justification by human faith and justification by human obedience to the law. Paul is against both of those And it's a justification by the saving death of Christ. We are justified by his blood, Paul says in 5.9. We are justified by God's grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, says 3.24. We're justified because of the hilasterion, the mercy seat. We're justified because God didn't spare his son like he spared Abraham's son. And the son wasn't just given over to a brutal death by the father. The father and the son agreed. The human will of Jesus Christ was inextricably bound and tethered to the divine will of the Father to save. Jesus Christ's will is the only human will involved in the salvation of the whole world. That's the gospel. Announce it. Guess what will happen? People will wake up from their sleep. People are sleepwalking through life everywhere in the world today. They'll wake up and guess what will happen? Christ will shine on them as their redeemer, their savior, their liberator. That's Ephesians 5.14. That's the gospel. And so here, I want you to get this point and I will fan it out. I know this is going to inspire more questions, which will be answered. I already know a lot more than I'm letting on. But I'm teaching little by little because some of you are not able to bear this all at once. That's my pastoral love for you. I love you. I really do, actually. Paul begs to differ with this whole stance from 10.6 to 17. There are some that haven't heard. If there's some that haven't heard, there's some that won't believe. If there's some that won't believe, how can they be saved? Paul says, Verse 18, who said they didn't hear? They all heard, meaning he's not saying you have to hear to be saved. He's saying if you say they all have to hear to be saved, I'm telling you it's as if they already heard because they're already saved. Who's saying they haven't heard? Doesn't it say, and he quotes Psalm 19.4 here, he says, did they really not hear according to you? Did they really not hear? That is, without a preacher? He says, on the contrary. You can't get any more strong than that. On the contrary. Yes, they have. You're saying, wait a minute, Paul. You've got to be insane. You're saying that they've already heard. No, I'm saying that it's as good as if they've already heard because they're saved without hearing. 
They're saved without human believing. They're saved because God reconciled the world, and they happen to be part of the world, in Christ. You say, wait a minute, that's going too far. Yes, it is. It's too far, isn't it? It's too far. It's too far for orthodoxy, so-called. It's too far for the gospel preachers that want to have some credit, for the preacher that wants to believe that it's because of him that people are saved, for the witnesses that want to say, I saved these people. I can't wait till the judgment seat. I'll see all these people that I witness to that are saved because of me. No way. I was crucified with Christ. I'm content with that. I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God. I'm content with that. He gave himself for me. I like that. I don't frustrate the grace of God. Like justification by personal faith does. Like justification by personal works. What's the difference? They're both about me. Instead of Christ. Now remember when Luther faced the cardinals the second time. He said, here I stand. I'm saying that today to the whole world. Here I stand. Walk it back to hell with you. I can say that now because you can't do that. You can't go there. What does he say here? Did they really not hear? He's quoting them back in their face. Did they really not hear? Meaning without a preacher? On the contrary, yes, they have. Once again, let me teach this a little bit. Teaching and preaching are both important. Paul does not mean that all have heard the gospel, but that all have as good as heard. In other words, if you're right that they have to hear to believe, then they've all heard. If you're right that they have to hear and believe to be saved, then they've all heard and believed. Because when Jesus Christ was faithful, his faithfulness counted for all of them. The whole world will be and has been saved, in other words. Yes, they have. Then he quotes a verse in a stunning, shocking, creative way, and he says, into all the earth. What does Jeremiah 9.24 says that distills the whole message of God? That they know, they can boast in this, that they know and that they understand me who does righteousness and judgment and mercy in all the earth. And that's what Paul's saying. Into all the earth, their voice has gone. Meaning, if you think it depends upon a missionary, if you think it depends upon preachers, it's as good as done. It's, it is done. They've already heard. The whole world has heard because it's not hearing that saves. That's what he's saying here. In other words, he cites Psalm 19.4 brilliantly to show this. The horizon of God's salvation is as wide as the horizon of God's creation. His saving act is like his creative act. He made things out of nothing and made them to be. And so salvation is like that act of God. He calls into existence a new creation out of nothing. He makes us a new creation. His salvation is a new creation. His creation is creation-wide. His salvation is creation-wide. It's a new creation. And that's what Paul's after here. Paul is not saying that one has to hear and believe to be saved. I'll say it again. It's too hard to believe, isn't it? it? Paul isn't saying here that one has to hear and believe to be saved. God, in fact, did the opposite, didn't he? He put everybody in a category called apistia, unbelief, so that he could save them all. By his mercy. Romans 11.32. He imprisons all in unbelief so that he can have mercy on all. He's saying that all are saved without having to hear and believe. Because Jesus Christ's faithfulness is the means of the righteousness of God being for all. This is the righteousness of God that's apocalyptically revealed in the gospel from faith to faith. And you know what that means? 
The gospel is the announcement of good news. It's God's righteousness revealed out of faith, God's faithfulness, into faith, Christ's faithfulness. I am saved. Here's my testimony. I am saved because of God's faithfulness to me and because of Christ's faithfulness for me, period, over and out. And after he saved me, you know what he did? He gave me a thing called faith. After he saved me, he said, have a deep and abiding faith. And it's through that faith that I understand that he saved me without faith. Through my faith, I understand that he saved me without my faith. That he saved me by his own faithfulness. That God was in Christ before I was a twinkle in the eye of my father, a couple thousand years before that. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. I didn't know that until after he saved me, and I looked back and said, oh, I get it. And it took me about four decades to get it. Because God knew probably I couldn't bear it. Gave me it all at once on a day in January in the dead of winter in the upstate Vermont. Gave it to me all at once. And then seemed to take it away. And I said, where did that go? And he said, you can't bear it yet. I'm going to teach you what it means now. And here I stand. So. Here. Paul, who announced himself as a slave and an emissary of Christ Jesus. And in Galatians 1.1, he says, not from men, not from men, or even from human mediation. That's the right translation. Eberhard Jungo got it right. The truth of the gospel. Paul begins... And Paul continues to bring what I call USSJC, the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ, and now extended to U-R-R-I-C-C, the universal redemptive and reconciling impact of the cross of Christ. He brings that to bear on the walls that separate the saints who equally belong to Christ in Rome. And it smashes those walls. This is a message that has to be spread to all the world. I have an urgency to spread it to all the world. Not because all the world needs to be saved by my message. But because I have a message to tell the world that they have been reconciled to God in Christ. This is a new missiology. This is a missionary enterprise that missionary affiliations don't prep you for because this is the real thing. This isn't pretend. This isn't wide-eyed romantic vision. This isn't, oh, let's get them out of their loincloths and into a tuxedo either. This is announcing a reconciliation that has been wrought by God in Christ, a salvation that has been finished by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who is also the Savior of the world, Already, this is a new kind of missiology, and all of us are missionaries. Indeed, we are the apostolate to the whole earth. Look at, I'm going to close. This is where the real thing slams right here, verse 10. But I, Paul, say, I say, here he is again. The righteousness that is by personal faith says all that. The righteousness of the law, quoting Moses, says that. I am telling you this, and I got somebody backing me, he says. His name happens to be Yahweh. I am that I am. The one who announced himself at the burning bush to Moses, which to Jesus interpreted in Luke 20, verses 37 to 38, by saying he's the God who is not a God of the dead, but a God of the living, and to him all are living. To God, all are living. To the one who believes... This message, all are living. To the one who thinks they have to be saved by faith, they don't see this. They don't get it. They're blinded by the gospel of their own human performance and believing. They trust in human believing. Another one trusts in human doing. And the human believing and the human doing are all part of the same pile of filthy rags. Where's Jesus Christ in it? Sidelined. Oh, he's over there. 
on the side. He's rooting for me. Keep believing. Keep doing. I'll reward you when it's all over. He's not a cheerleader. He's not a sidekick. He's God Almighty and man in Christ Jesus in one man. Verse 10, 19 rather. But I, Paul say, but adversative, contrary to what they've been saying in 10, 6 through 17, did not, did Israel not understand? First Moses said, I will make you jealous by those who aren't even a nation. And I'll provoke you to anger by a nation that is void of understanding. Then Isaiah backed him up very boldly. Boldly. That's audacity. Isaiah backed Moses up. Moses was pointing to a time when God was going to create a nation out of nothing to provoke Israel to jealousy. What was he doing? He was trying to say, hey, the Gentiles are in unbelief. I'm going to make the Jews in unbelief. I'm going to put them all in the same maximum security prison. Then I'm going to blow up the gates and let them all out by my mercy. How do you do that? You do it in Christ. You do it in Christ. And so in verse, he says, then Isaiah backed up Moses very boldly saying, I love this. I, who is Isaiah speaking for? It's actually Yahweh, the God of Israel, speaking through Isaiah's lips in Isaiah 65, 1. I was found by those who were not seeking me. I was found by those who were not seek all the way back to Romans 3 10. There's none that seeks for God. Nobody seeks after him. I was found by those who were not seeking me. He says, I revealed myself to those who were not asking, not asking for me, not inquiring. But to Israel, verse 21 He says, that's Yahweh speaking through Isaiah, all day long, here it is again, all day long, I have stretched out my hands, Christ crucified, to a disobedient and a defiant people. So on the one hand, you got the Gentiles, they're not seeking, they're not asking. God creates out of them a nation. He makes Israel who's seeking and asking and inquiring and doing jealous of them because he just saved them for no reason at all except his love. What's he doing? Put an arrow in a bracket like I did in my notes to Romans eleven twenty eight. So you see these Israel have been made enemies of the gospel for your sake. And the gifts and calling of God on Israel are not revoked. As many as he called, those he justified. He called Israel, he justified Israel. He glorifies the same ones he calls. Abraham was called out of the Ur of Chaldees. He saw Yahweh. He obeyed him in Genesis 12.1. So what makes you think he got justified by his personal faith in 15.6 years later? Romans 4 is coming up. Got to interpret it the right way. And so by this whole chapter, Paul has kicked out the props under both, both the nomistic gospel or the gospel of human works and the gospel of justification by an individual's faith, calling on, asking for, seeking, saying a prayer, believing in one's heart, saying Jesus is Lord. And again, Paul says in Romans, if that's Paul speaking, then what did he mean in 1 Corinthians 12, 3? No man can say, no person can say, no woman can say, no child can say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. So if you're going to say Jesus is Lord and then you get rewarded for salvation for it, then what do you mean that only by the Spirit you can say Jesus is Lord? Meaning you can only say Jesus is Lord if you're already saved. You don't say Jesus is Lord to be saved. You can only say Jesus is Lord and know that he's your Lord by the faith that he gives you after he saves you. You're not saved by your faith. You're saved and God gives you faith. 
You look back retrospectively. People that ask people to admit they're a sinner and come to Jesus are actually asking them to do something they can only do if they're already in Christ. Look back to see what kind of a plight they were under in sin. They don't know that until after they're slammed into Christ and then they say, man, I was in a bad mess. So, once again, Paul's kicked out the props, not only of gospel of justification by an individual's works, but by justification, also kicked out the idea of justification by an individual's faith or calling on God or seeking God or asking for God or saying a prayer or making a confession. Does Paul say, if you confess, you will be saved? If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that he's been raised from the dead, you will be saved in the future? you got to do all that before salvation comes to you. Or did he say, you've been saved by grace and through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, someone other than yourself altogether? That's the gospel. How many times have we heard what men call the gospel, what women call the gospel, and they actually have the audacity to call it good news? That ain't good news. Because maybe you got saved, but there's a whole millions and millions of others, according to your gospel, that haven't heard, so they can't call on him, so that, you know, da, da, da. It's all human action. I like what Jesus said. The Holy Spirit will go into all the world and convince the world. The Holy Spirit convinces the world. All the world has heard because the Holy Spirit's the one that does it. And people say, well, yeah, but, you know, people die without doing it. You think death means something to God? You think, oh, there's the end. You think death means something to God? All are living to God, including your loved one who passed from this life. To God, they're living. To you, they may be gone and dead. To God, they're living. So in closing, go all the way back to Romans 10.1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God concerning them is with regard to salvation. Then go jump from 10.1 to 11.26. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, as it is written, the liberator will come from Zion. He will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. In other words, all Israel will be saved by a divine action. A divine action. And the liberator has already come out of his Zion. And he has been crucified on the cross. He has become obedient even to the extent of death by crucifixion. So you can be assured that every knee will eventually, every knee will genuflect, every tongue will acknowledge, but that's not unto salvation. That's unto the glorification of Jesus Christ and to the glory of God the Father. In the eternal God, he's already all and in all. In time as we know it, There is still yet to be the manifestation of it. And there's nothing left to do once you realize this, but to worship him. Oh, the depths of the knowledge and the wisdom of God. His ways are past finding out. His judgments are unfathomable. His grace is so exceeding it's impossible to describe. His wisdom is a saving design for all of his creation. His salvation is a new creation. God creates without the aid of human beings. He saves without the aid of human beings. Your salvation is a new creation. If any person is in Christ Jesus, that's a new creation. And we don't know anyone after the flesh anymore because all are in Christ. From where I see now, it's impossible to see any other thing because where I see now, I see from inside the eternal God's viewpoint that all are in Christ. All are in Christ. All are in Christ. Once you see it, you can't say something different. You can only say that. I can't know anyone after the flesh. It's not that I just know Christians are in Christ. I know that all are in Christ. You see it from the inside of the eternal God. And if he gives you that vision, if he gives you that perception, that is a work of his grace. Thank you, Father, for showing us that Romans is not just a 
work in which Paul is comparing and contrasting salvation by works of the law with salvation by human believing and human confession and human repentance and human this and human that. I thank you, Father, that we have come to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we are saved by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. We have been saved by grace and through a faithfulness that has nothing to do with ourselves, nothing to do with ourselves. And I thank you for the assurance that all the world has as much as and has effectively has heard because skipping hearing and believing, all the world is saved. Skipping hearing and believing and confessing because Jesus Christ heard you, Father, And Jesus Christ, your son, executed perfect obedience and fidelity to you, Father. And you offered your son and didn't spare him, but your son agreed to be not spared for us all. 